Reginald in Russia by Saki Read by Richard Crowest Cross Currents Vanessa Pennington had a husband who was poor, with few extenuating circumstances, and an admirer who, though comfortably rich, was cumbered with a sense of honour. His wealth made him welcome in Vanessa's eyes, but his code of what was right impelled him to go away and forget her, or at the most to think of her in the intervals of doing a great many other things. And although Alaric Clyde loved Vanessa and thought he should always go on loving her, he gradually and unconsciously allowed himself to be wooed and won by a more alluring mistress. He fancied that his continued shunning of the haunts of men was a self-imposed exile, but his heart was caught in the spell of the wilderness, and the wilderness was kind and beautiful to him. When one is young and strong and unfettered, the wild earth can be very kind and very beautiful. Witness the legion of men who were once young and unfettered, and now eat out their souls in dustbins, because, having erstwhile known and loved the wilderness, they broke from her thrall and turned aside into beaten paths. In the high waste places of the world, Clyde roamed and hunted and dreamed, death-dealing and gracious as some god of Hellas, moving with his horses and servants and four-footed camp followers from one dwelling-ground to another, a welcome guest among wild primitive village folk and nomads, a friend and slayer of the fleet shy beasts around him. By the shores of misty upland lakes he shot the wildfowl that had winged their way to him across half the old world. Beyond Bokhara he watched the wild Aryan horsemen at their gambols, watched, too, in some dim-lit tea-house, one of those beautiful, uncouth dances that one can never wholly forget. Or, making a wide cast down to the valley of the Tigris, swam and rolled in its snow-cooled racing waters. Vanessa, meanwhile, in a Bayswater backstreet, was making out the weekly laundry list, attending bargain sales, and, in her more adventurous moments, trying new ways of cooking whiting. Occasionally she went to bridge parties, where, if the play was not illuminating, at least one learnt a great deal about the private life of some of the royal and imperial houses. Vanessa, in a way, was glad that Clyde had done the proper thing, she had a strong, natural bias towards respectability, though she would have preferred to have been respectable in smarter surroundings, where her example would have done more good. To be beyond reproach was one thing, but it would have been nicer to have been nearer to the park. And then, of a sudden, her regard for respectability and Clyde's sense of what was right were thrown on the scrap-heap of unnecessary things. They had been useful and highly important in their time— but the death of Vanessa's husband made them of no immediate moment. The news of the altered condition of things followed Clyde with leisurely persistence from one place of call to another, and at last ran him to a standstill somewhere in the Orenburg steppe. He would have found it exceedingly difficult to analyse his feelings on receipt of the tidings. The fates had unexpectedly, and perhaps just a little officiously, removed an obstacle from his path. He supposed he was overjoyed, 
but he missed the feeling of elation which he had experienced some four months ago when he had bagged a snow leopard with a lucky shot after a day's fruitless stalking. Of course, he would go back and ask Vanessa to marry him, but he was determined on enforcing a condition. On no account would he desert his newer love. Vanessa would have to agree to come out into the wilderness with him. The lady hailed the return of her lover with even more relief than had been occasioned by his departure. The death of John Pennington had left his widow in circumstances which were more straitened than ever, and the park had receded even from her notepaper, where it had long been retained as a courtesy title on the principle that addresses are given to us to conceal our whereabouts. Certainly she was more independent now than heretofore, but independence, which means so much to many women, was of little account to Vanessa, who came under the heading of the mere female. She made little ado about accepting Clyde's condition, and announced herself ready to follow him to the end of the world. As the world was round, she nourished a complacent idea that, in the ordinary course of things, one would find oneself in the neighbourhood of Hyde Park Corner sooner or later, no matter how far afield one wandered. East of Budapest, her complacency began to filter away, and when she saw her husband treating the Black Sea with a familiarity which she had never been able to assume towards the English Channel, misgivings began to crowd in upon her. Adventures which would have presented an amusing and enticing aspect to a better-bred woman aroused in Vanessa only the twin sensations of fright and discomfort. Flies bit her, and she was persuaded that it was only sheer boredom that prevented camels from doing the same. Clyde did his best, and a very good best it was, to infuse something of the banquet into their prolonged desert picnics, but even snow-cooled hide-seek lost its flavour when you were convinced that the dusky cup-bearer who served it with such reverent elegance was only waiting a convenient opportunity to cut your throat. It was useless for Clyde to give Yusuf a character for devotion such as is rarely found in any Western servant. Vanessa was well enough educated to know that all dusky-skinned people take human life as unconcernedly as Bayswater folk take singing lessons. And with a growing irritation and querulousness on her part came a further disenchantment, born of the inability of husband and wife to find a common ground of interest. The habits and migrations of the sand-grouse, the folklore and customs of Tartars and Turkomans, the points of a Cossack pony, these were matters which evoked only a bored indifference in Vanessa. On the other hand, Clyde was not thrilled on being informed that the Queen of Spain detested Mauve, or that a certain royal duchess, for whose tastes he was never likely to be called on to cater, nursed a violent but perfectly respectable passion for beef olives. Vanessa began to arrive at the conclusion that her husband who added a roving disposition to a settled income was a mixed blessing. It was one thing to go to the end of the world, it was quite another thing to make oneself at home there. Even respectability seemed to lose some of its virtue when one practised it in a tent. Bored and disillusioned with the drift of her new life, Vanessa was undisguisedly glad when distraction offered itself in the person of Mr. de Brinton, a chance acquaintance whom they had first run against in the primitive hostelry of a benighted Caucasian town. 
De Brinton was elaborately British, in deference, perhaps, to the memory of his mother, who was said to have derived part of her origin from an English governess who had come to Lemberg a long way back in the last century. If you had called him Dobrinsky when off his guard, he would probably have responded readily enough. Holding, no doubt, that the end crowns all, he had taken a slight liberty with the family patronymic. To look at, Mr. de Brinton was not a very attractive specimen of masculine humanity, but in Vanessa's eyes he was a link with that civilization which Clyde seemed so ready to ignore and forego. He could sing yip i Addy and spoke of several duchesses as if he knew them, in his more inspired moments almost as if they knew him. He even pointed out blemishes in the cuisine or cellar departments of some of the more august London restaurants, a species of higher criticism which was listened to by Vanessa in awe-stricken admiration. And, above all, he sympathised, at first discreetly, afterwards with more latitude, with her fretful discontent at Clyde's nomadic instincts. A business connected with oil wells had brought de Brinton to the neighbourhood of Baku, the pleasure of appealing to an appreciative female audience induced him to deflect his return journey so as to coincide a good deal with his new acquaintance's line of march. And while Clyde trafficked with Persian horse-dealers, or hunted the wild grey pigs in their lairs, and added to his notes on Central Asian gamefowl, de Brinton and the lady discussed the ethics of desert respectability from points of view that showed a daily tendency to converge. And one evening Clyde dined alone, reading between the courses a long letter from Vanessa, justifying her action in flitting to more civilised lands with a more congenial companion. It was distinctly evil luck for Vanessa, who really was thoroughly respectable at heart, that she and her lover should run into the hands of Kurdish brigands on the first day of their flight. To be mewed up in a squalid Kurdish village in close companionship with a man who was only your husband by adoption, and to have the attention of all Europe drawn to your plight, was about the least respectable thing that could happen. And there were international complications which made things worse. English lady and her husband of foreign nationality held by Kurdish brigands who demand ransom, had been the report of the nearest consul. Although de Brinton was British at heart, the other portions of him belonged to the Habsburgs, and though the Habsburgs took no great pride or pleasure in this particular unit of their wide and varied possessions, and would gladly have exchanged him for some interesting bird or mammal for the Schönbrunn Park, the Code of International Dignity demanded that they should display a decent solicitude for his restoration. And while the foreign offices of the two countries were taking the usual steps to secure the release of their respective subjects, a further horrible complication ensued. Clyde, following on the track of the fugitives, not with any special desire to overtake them, but with a dim feeling that it was expected of him, fell into the hands of the same community of brigands. Diplomacy, while anxious to do its best for a lady in misfortune, showed signs of becoming restive at this expansion of its task. As a frivolous young gentleman in Downing Street remarked, "'Any husband of Mrs. de Brinton's we shall be glad to extricate, but let us know how many there are of them.' For a woman who valued respectability, Vanessa really had no luck. Meanwhile, the situation of the captives was not free from embarrassment.' 
When Clyde explained to the Kurdish headman the nature of his relationship with the runaway couple, they were gravely sympathetic, but vetoed any idea of summary vengeance, since the Habsburgs would be sure to insist on the delivery of de Brinton alive and in a reasonably undamaged condition. They did not object to Clyde administering a beating to his rival for half an hour every Monday and Thursday, but de Brinton turned such a sickly green when he heard of this arrangement that the chief was obliged to withdraw the concession. And so, in the cramped quarters of a mountain hut, the ill-assorted trio watched the insufferable hours crawl slowly by. De Brinton was too frightened to be conversational, Vanessa was too mortified to open her lips, and Clyde was moodily silent. The little Lemberg négociant plucked up heart once to give a quavering rendering of Yip Iaddy, but when he reached the statement, home was never like this, Vanessa tearfully begged him to stop. And silence fastened itself with growing insistence on the three captives who were so tragically herded together. Thrice a day they drew near to one another to swallow the meal that had been prepared for them, like desert beasts meeting in mute suspended hostility at the drinking pool, and then drew back to resume the vigil of waiting. Clyde was less carefully watched than the others. Jealousy will keep him to the woman's side, thought his Kurdish captors. They did not know that his wilder, truer love was calling to him with a hundred voices from beyond the village bounds. And, one evening, finding that he was not getting the attention to which he was entitled, Clyde slipped away down the mountainside and resumed his study of Central Asian gamefowl. The remaining captives were guarded henceforth with greater rigour, but de Brinton, at any rate, scarcely regretted Clyde's departure. The long arm, or perhaps one might better say the long purse, of diplomacy at last effected the release of the prisoners, but the Habsburgs were never to enjoy the guerdon of their outlay. On the quay of the little Black Sea port, where the rescued pair came once more into contact with civilization, de Brinton was bitten by a dog which was assumed to be mad, though it may only have been indiscriminating. The victim did not wait for symptoms of rabies to declare themselves, but died forthwith of fright, and Vanessa made the homeward journey alone, conscious somehow of a sense of slightly restored respectability. Clyde, in the intervals of correcting the proofs of his book on the gamefowl of Central Asia, found time to press a divorce suit through the courts, and as soon as possible hide him away to the congenial solitudes of the Gobi Desert to collect material for a work on the fauna of that region. Vanessa, by virtue perhaps of her earlier intimacy with the cooking rites of the Whiting, obtained a place on the kitchen staff of a West End club. It was not brilliant, but at least it was within two minutes of the park. <laughs>